Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Crash Course Catholicism. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the second half of the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, by (laughs) talking about the big end of life issues. So abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. So like, basically, it's just like a fun little episode, really light, some easy topics. Are you welcome? (laughs) Okay. And I'm going to start with a joke. This is a joke that my dad told me the other day and gird your loins because it is lame, but it's also like a really useful framing device for this episode. So it goes like this. Two philosophers were walking down the street and they spotted these other two guys standing on their balconies opposite each other, arguing with each other. And one philosopher turns to the other philosopher and says, they'll never agree. They're arguing from different premises. Uh, Get it? (laughs) Funny. (laughs) No, but seriously, that's actually really useful. Arguing from different premises. What does it mean to argue from different premises. Also, what's a premise? Okay, let's start with that. So a quick recap so that we're all on the same page. A premise is like a basic foundational fact or statement, right? Like the sky is blue or that is a dog. And these premises are like kind of like the raw materials that we use to build our opinions, our beliefs, our behaviors. It's kind of like the bricks that we use to build a house. So I can put two premises together and then draw a conclusion from them. I can say dogs wag their tails when they're happy. That dog is wagging its tail. Therefore, that dog is happy. Now, if my premises are correct, then my conclusion will also be correct. But... If even one of my premises is incorrect, that's kind of like putting a broken brick in the foundations of my house, right? The whole structure will be unsound. So for instance, if I said dogs growl when they're happy, that dog is growling, therefore that dog is happy, (laughs) we can see how one incorrect premise has led me to an incorrect and potentially very dangerous conclusion. So as human beings, we are all walking around with different premises in our heads, right? Different foundational facts and beliefs about the world. But unfortunately, often the only thing that we can see when we look at other people is their conclusions, right? Their overall attitudes and opinions and behaviors. But we can't immediately see those premises. It's kind of like only seeing the facade of a house and not being able to see its foundations, Now, why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because it means that we tend to think that other people are crazy, right? We look at someone else and we think, oh, that person is an absolute monster. How could they possibly think that way? And we do that because we are assuming that they have the same premises as us, that they've just used the same materials to build this monstrous structure. And that's what happens when we argue from different premises, right? I'm standing here on my balcony and you're standing there on yours and we're both going, your house looks stupid. But actually, if we want to understand what that person really thinks and why, and if we want to actually accurately judge whether that opinion or that belief is right or wrong, we actually have to look past that facade and really consider what the foundations of that belief are, right? What what it's made of, how it's been put together. 
So that's what we're going to do in this episode. We are going to, in the immortal words of Dylan Thomas, begin at the beginning. We are, Or, <laughs> slightly more recognisable pop culture reference, start at the very beginning, but at Julie Andrews, you're welcome. We're going to start with those fundamental premises and see if we can build up from there to understand the church's position on these end-of-life issues. So, beginning with abortion. We're going to start with two questions. And these two questions are really important because the answers to them will help us to establish our premises. The first question is, is a fetus a human being? The second question is, do all human beings have an equal right to life? Now, whenever I ask my secular friends these questions, these two questions, I generally get an answer along the following lines. First of all, they might say that particularly at the early stages of a pregnancy, a fetus or an embryo is not a human being. It's just an inanimate clump of cells, right? I mean, it has the potential to become a human being, but it isn't one yet. And then in answer to the second question, they might say, you know, even later on in the pregnancy where it's looking more like a human being, it might technically be human, but it isn't yet a human being person. So they would distinguish between a human being and a human person. They might say something like this. Look, a fetus doesn't even know that it's alive, right? It's got no awareness of its surroundings. It hasn't developed attachments to the world or to other human beings. So you can't compare it to, say, a mother of three who has a life and a job and people who depend on her and her life is in danger because of this baby she's carrying, right? You can't hold those two things up and say that they're equal. And to be perfectly honest, I can kind of understand why people think that way. I mean, if you look at an embryo at the earliest stages of its growth, it doesn't look like a human being. It looks like a clump of cells. It's not until about four weeks, maybe, that it even begins to take on a recognizable human shape. As well as that, We are human beings, right? And as such, we look for tangible evidence of stuff. So a woman who is standing in front of me, who has kids and a job and a life, seems so much more tangible and kind of real and human and alive than this baby that we can't even see, or or especially if we're calling it a fetus, right? We can't even see it. It's like an abstract idea. It hasn't even opened its eyes yet. I mean, if you've ever seen a baby being born... There is this moment when the baby is actually born where it's suddenly like, oh my gosh, like suddenly there is this a human being in this room and it wasn't there two seconds ago. It's, it's like it's appeared out of nowhere, right? It's an incredible moment where you actually see the baby and you're like, oh my gosh. And it's really hard to actually grasp that, no, the, the baby was there two seconds ago. It's just that we couldn't see it. And it's really hard to grasp that something is real and alive and there if we can't see it. Now, If I thought this way, if I thought that a fetus was just a clump of cells that has not achieved personhood, I would totally come to the same conclusion as many of my friends, right? That the pro-choice position actually logically follows from those two premises. If it's a clump of cells that hasn't achieved personhood, it would be ridiculous to say, okay, for the sake of this inanimate clump of cells, we are going to sacrifice the well-being and the health of a woman who is in crisis. However, let's just take a look at those two premises a little more closely. First of all, let's consider the idea that an embryo is not a living human being. 
Now, I'm going to put some resources in the show notes that go into this in a little more detail, some sort of scientific papers for the nerds. But let's just think about what happens at the moment of conception. And this, by the way, is when we stop talking about philosophy and we're actually just talking science, right? At the moment of conception, within one second of the sperm entering the egg, the two become fused and kind of transform into a brand new organism, which we call a zygote. And a zygote, I mean, it's not just like an egg with a sperm inside it, right? It's literally a new organism. And it immediately begins to grow and develop. Now, what's really interesting is that the growth and development of a zygote is self-directed. So what that means is that the zygote itself is taking in nutrients, generating its own enzymes and proteins. It's literally growing itself. It's not just an inanimate clump of cells that the mother's body is turning into a baby. In fact, the only thing that the mother's body does is to provide a hospitable environment for the embryo to do its own thing. So one paper that I read put it like this. I really like it. It says, all subsequent events after that moment of conception are acts of the zygote, not acts that form the zygote. So another way of putting this is to say that the zygote is biologically alive, right? And it's not just alive. It is also a complete human organism. So it was, it's really interesting. I was listening to a lecture this week. And the lecturer was talking about gene editing and how that's becoming more of a thing. Terrifying. And she gave this example of these two embryos that had had their genes edited. And it was really interesting the way that she put it. She said, these edited embryos were then used to make human beings. And I thought that was a really interesting choice of words to say that they were used to make human beings implies that the embryo was just one ingredient among many, right? That other things were also needed in order to turn the embryo into a human. But that's not the case. That's not what happens. All that happens is that the embryo has been left in the right environment to grow, right? On its own. In other words, those embryos, they were already humans. They were just at the earliest stages of their development. It's not like an embryo starts out with like half the genetic material it needs, and then the other half is added later. It is a complete biologically human living organism from the moment of its conception. It has its own set of human DNA, complete human DNA, and that DNA is entirely distinct from the mother's DNA. So it's not part of the mother's body. It's not like a growth on the mother's body. It is literally a separate human body. There's a, um, a booklet released by Catholic Answers called 20 Questions Abortion, which is really, really worth reading. One of the things that they point out is that the term fetus literally means small one or young one or something. It literally is just a description of a stage of development. It's not a description of a different kind of being, right? Now, these are largely undisputed scientific facts, right? This isn't just some religious group coming out to be like, it's alive, right? This is, this is just the science of it. It is a living human organism. Now, this is when we get to that second premise, the idea that this okay, might be a, technically a human being, it might be technically alive, but it isn't a human person. Well, in response to that objective, I would pose a question. And that question is, what 
actually makes a human being a human person. Because if you're arguing that it's, you know, experiences and attachments to life or, you know, having a recognizable physical shape of a human that makes a human being a human person, if we are being intellectually honest and consistent, and we're not just sort of arbitrarily applying this logic just to unborn humans, we have to then apply that logic to all human beings, right? Not just to unborn ones. And as soon as we do that, as soon as we say that experiences and attachments and, you know, appearance, etc., are what make us a person, if we apply that to all human beings, we very quickly dig ourselves into a eugenics hole, right? It becomes really difficult for us to then defend the worth of someone who is in a coma or who has a severe disability or like a burns victim who, you know, was in a fire and doesn't look anything like other human beings, you know. And of course, we could say, well, you know, a person with a profound disability, that's different because they have families who love them and, and, you know, people who value them and those attachments to life. But that's even worse because that means that we're saying that a person is only worth what other people think they're worth or the experiences that they've had in the world. What does that mean for someone who, you know, has lived in a nursing home their whole life by themselves and no one ever comes to visit them and no one ever loves them? Does that mean that that is not a person and that we have an equal right to take their life if we need to? As soon as personhood is contingent and not inherent, right, as soon as it's something that is earned or conferred rather than being something that belongs to all human beings simply by virtue of the fact that they exist – we find ourselves on really dangerous, shaky, ethical ground. So what the church teaches in contrast is that personhood is not something that is earned. It's not something that is conferred. It is inherent. Every single human being, no matter how developed they are, no matter how old they are, what they look like, what abilities they have, absolutely every single human being ever, anywhere, ever, is equally valuable, and worthy of life and has the same human rights as everyone else. Now, this position makes particular sense if you believe that human beings are more than just matter. And again, here we have to acknowledge that the secular world is often arguing from a completely different set of premises. Because I've had conversations with friends who will say, you know, okay, I get it. It's a human person, technically, etc. But really, at the end of the day, I just don't think that there's such thing as a human soul. You know, we're all just a bunch of matter. When we die, we stop existing. And so I just don't have any emotional problem with ending the life of someone who hasn't been born yet and doesn't even know that they're alive, particularly if it's in aid of someone who has been born and whose life is in danger, etc. Again, you know, I would then prompt that person to apply that logic across all human beings. And that sort of makes it clearer, you know, that it's maybe not the most sound logic. However, and this is the difference, right, between a secular and a Christian understanding of the human person. For Catholics, as we've said before, human beings have this spiritual, eternal element to them that is present from the moment they come into existence. And you can go back to some of our earlier episodes, like episode six, for instance, if you want to think a bit more about this. And what this means is that they have this added dimension, right? We're made in the image and likeness of God. We're made for eternity in heaven. We're not just matter. We have a spiritual soul. And this gives us dignity and purpose and worth and our right to life. Now, two questions that follow on from all of this. Firstly, does 
all of this stuff about abortion mean that we get to judge a woman who has had an abortion? No, (laughs) absolutely not. We can judge the objective morality of an act, but we do not have the right to judge the state of a person's soul. Now, this is not to say that it's all fine and dandy and there's nothing wrong with abortion or you do you or whatever. Obviously, we should do everything that we can to try to prevent a situation where someone has an abortion. But it's really important to bear in mind if we come across someone who has had an abortion that very often women in these situations are facing pressures that can seriously limit their culpability. So if we encounter someone who's had an abortion, the priority should be on you know, mercy, helping that person to heal and to come back to union with God rather than on judging and condemning. And I actually say this less for the Catholics because the Catholics that I have encountered, like I can't think of a single Catholic that I know who would be, you know, judgmental and condemning of a woman who's had an abortion. I say this more for the people who feel like, well, the church's teaching means that I am being judged or that my friend is being judged. This is a reassurance that you are not being judged. There's absolutely not what the church teaches or encourages. Um, if you want to think a bit more about this, I recommend listening listening to an episode of a oh, it's actually two episodes of a podcast called Among the Lilies episodes 98 and 99 which is an interview with a woman who has had an abortion and it's so beautiful and moving literally I was listening to it and I was like bawling my eyes out on the bus it's just so beautiful so I recommend that now the second question that follows on from all of this does our belief in the rights of the unborn child mean that we then have to sacrifice or ignore or undermine the rights of women who are in danger or who are experiencing a crisis pregnancy? Again, no, not at all. If a woman is in a crisis situation and she's pregnant, societies and individuals have an obligation to do absolutely everything that they can to try to support and assist that woman. The only kind of boundary is that that assistance has to fall within the bounds of what is morally permissible. So in the same way that, you know, if a woman is a single mother with a two-year-old child and she's also fleeing domestic violence, she doesn't have a job or a home, she's desperate and afraid and alone. Okay, we need to do absolutely everything that we can to try to help that woman. Now, one of the options that is not available to us in that situation is to take the life of the toddler because that would make her situation, you know, more doable. Okay, that's not an option. But whatever else we can do, we should do. And it's the same when it comes to abortion. For a woman in crisis, okay, it's not morally permissible to kill her unborn child, but that does not mean that we then get to sort of wash our hands and say, you know, you're on your own. Mothers and their unborn children both have fundamental human rights and we have to honor and fight for both of them. And in fact, providing for the needs of mothers in crisis, this is a crucial element of creating a pro-life society. It's not enough to just say, you know, abortion is not allowed. We actually then have to provide genuine alternatives to abortion so women feel that they have other choices. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, you know, when you're a kid and you go to your mom and you're like, mom, I'm hungry. And your mom's like, well, I don't want you to fill up on junk food. So if you're hungry, you can have a piece of fruit. Okay. In that situation, annoying as it is, your mom actually has a point. Like it's not good to fill up on junk food and you should just eat a piece of fruit. However, if you then look at the fruit bowl and the only thing in there is like, bananas that are two weeks old and they've gone moldy and they're almost black or like a couple of apples that are covered in bruises and there's like fruit flies around them. Okay. In that situation, your parent has technically pointed you in the direction of a thing that's good, but if they haven't actually given you a genuine alternative to the junk food, then 
that's obviously not going to help. And you're probably going to end up eating, you know, a packet of Pringles. So in the same way, if you're living in a society where abortion is illegal, but at the same time, you know, all the women's shelters are being shut down and there's no funding for domestic violence services. And, you know, the health and welfare systems are falling apart and the cost of living is ridiculously high. It's like offering a bowl of moldy fruit to someone who's starving. So here we can return to point 2286 of the catechism. And we talked about this in the last episode when we were discussing scandal. The catechism says they are guilty of scandal who establish laws or social structures that make obedience to the commandments difficult or practically impossible. In other words, if you tell people that they need to do something and then you make it really difficult for them to actually do that thing, you're kind of indirectly encouraging them to do the wrong thing anyway. And obviously, no one is saying that we need to live in some perfect utopian society before we can be pro-life, right? That we have to fix the welfare system before we can fight for the rights of the unborn. No, we need to do both. (laughs) The point is that as pro-lifers, we should be taking interest in all aspects of human rights and human flourishing. And we need to fight for the rights not just of unborn babies, but also of mothers and of potential or future mothers, especially when they are vulnerable or in crisis. Okay, (laughs) that's everything we're going to say about abortion. Man, we don't have commercial breaks in this podcast, but I feel like maybe this is a good time to like hit the pause button and like go and make a cup of tea or like take a breather, come up for air because that is a lot. Okay, so moving on to euthanasia. First of all, just so that we're all on the same page, let's just define what euthanasia actually is. Point 2277 of the Catechism defines euthanasia as putting an end to the lives of handicapped, sick or dying persons. So euthanasia is not the same as naturally allowing someone to die. That is a really important distinction to make at the outset. No one is saying that we have to take unreasonable measures to keep people alive, but rather that we don't have the right to deliberately take a human life. So the catechism in point 2278 says discontinuing medical procedures that are burdensome, dangerous, extraordinary or disproportionate can be legitimate. It is the refusal of overzealous treatment. So if you are terminally ill and you're offered a treatment that might extend your life by a few months, but there will also be you know, serious side effects that will reduce your quality of life, you're totally within your rights to refuse that treatment. The same can also go for you know, taking someone off life support if there is no reasonable chance that they could ever recover. In those situations, when naturally allowing someone to die rather than actively killing them. So the catechism says that in these situations, one does not will to cause death, one's inability to impede it is merely accepted. So in contrast to this, allowing someone to die, direct and active euthanasia, taking the life of someone who is dying or is suffering, is described in the catechism as morally unacceptable. Again, I think many people these days would take issue with that. Many of you know friends of mine who support euthanasia would argue that if someone is experiencing intolerable suffering and they make the free decision to end their own life, that they should be allowed to do that. That you know we don't have the right to force someone to continue to suffer needlessly, particularly if they're already terminally ill and they've freely made that decision. Okay, and here, once again, we return to 
premises, underlying beliefs and assumptions. So there are two key premises that sit under this argument that euthanasia should be permitted. The first is the assumption that I am the owner of my own life, right? My life is essentially mine to do what I want with so long as I don't sort of encroach on the freedom of other people. And if that's true, then, you know, autonomy is really my greatest right. So long as I'm not hurting anyone else, I'm not killing anyone else. I'm just, you know, asking to end my own life. I should be allowed to do that because it's my life. And then the second premise that sits under this belief is that, suffering, especially really intense suffering, is pretty much the ultimate evil, right? That the point of this life is to be happy in this life and to avoid pain whenever we can. So if someone is suffering intolerably and there is no way to stop that suffering, we should do whatever we can to stop it, even if that means ending that person's life. Okay, so let's consider that first premise that I am the owner of my life. In some of our earlier episodes, we talked about how God is life itself, being itself, right? He's the fullness and the source of all life and being. So what that means is that anything that is alive participates in that life that comes from God. What that means is that life doesn't inherently belong to me. I don't belong to myself. I belong in the most positive, free, loving sense of the word to God. And he's a God who isn't some sort of angry despot who's like, it's my life. (laughs) You're not allowed to do what you want with it. No, he's a God who loves us passionately and has a plan for us, right? He wants us to be able to go to heaven and to be with him. And obviously that doesn't mean that we don't have freedom in my own life. It's not like I'm a robot and God is controlling me, but it does mean that my freedom isn't absolute, So imagine if someone loaned me a really nice guitar, right? Obviously, I'm free to play the guitar. I'm free to tune it. I'm free to take it with me on holidays, right? But I don't have an absolute right to do whatever I want with it. So I can't just smash it on the ground sort of Woodstock style because ultimately it needs to go back to its owner. It's the same with life, right? I don't have that absolute right to do whatever I want with my life or to end my life because it's not just for me. It's not ultimately mine. Now, if you are finding this idea difficult because you don't believe that there is a God, okay, that's the point at which you should probably pause this episode and go back to episodes one and two, right? At that point, it actually starts being a conversation about euthanasia and becomes a conversation about the existence of God. And we need to sort that out first, because otherwise we're just going to remain on those different premises and we're going to go nowhere. So I would encourage you, if this is, you know, a difficult idea, then maybe, you know, that's where the kind of conversation needs to happen. And then that second premise, right, the idea that suffering is like the ultimate pointless evil. Well, first of all, the Catholic Church would agree that suffering is an evil and that we should try to lessen it wherever we can. So point 2279 of the Catechism talks about the use of pain relief and how pain relief is totally legitimate. It says the use of painkillers to alleviate the sufferings of the dying, even at the risk of shortening their days, can be morally in conformity with human dignity if death is not willed either as an end or a means, but only foreseen and tolerated as inevitable. So in other words, if your intention is to lessen someone's pain, so there are situations like this in palliative care, right? Where someone is dying and you increase the amount of morphine that they're on, 
And you know that that's going to shorten their life, but that's not the point. You're not trying to kill them. You're just trying to lessen their pain. That can be morally licit, right? Secondly, as Catholics, we believe that even though suffering, yes, it is an evil, but it's not the ultimate evil and it's not inherently pointless. It can actually be an incredible purifying, sanctifying process. And here we go back to some of the ideas that we touched on in episode 10 on the cross. So I recommend going back to that one if you want to think more about it. But just for now, to kind of illustrate this point, I want to share an excerpt from a testimony that was written by an Australian girl called Ellie Egan. Ellie Egan died in January of this year. She was 20 years old and she died of a brain tumor and she suffered a lot, but she was also totally transformed by that suffering. So I'll include the whole testimony in the show notes, but for now, I just want to read this quote. She says, when I was 15, I was diagnosed with brain cancer a tumor called DIPG, which is pretty aggressive and inoperable and incurable. They gave me nine months to live. That was 31 months ago. I can't walk properly anymore or write with my right hand. The tumor also affects my vision, my mouth and my speech. At first, I was very confused and didn't believe what was going on. I was scared, sad, angry and worried all at once. For months, I was so lost. I was angry at God and wondered why this was happening to me. Then my mum told me all we could do was pray. And she told me to hand myself over to God and that he would find good in all of this. It was all I had. So I started trusting in him. Once I did this, my worries started to go away. I was starting to understand suffering a bit more. I realized that if I was doing God's will, that no matter what happened, everything was going to be okay. The peace and comfort I now had was amazing. And now I can honestly say the last two years have been the best of my life. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? It gives me goosebumps, honestly. Um, There's a podcast episode um, on a podcast called Death and Donuts. It's an interview with Ellie's sister. And she talks about how Ellie was, I mean, she was a pretty typical kind of bit rebellious teenager before she got sick. And this illness completely transformed her own life. Ellie's auntie, Stephanie, is actually an intensive care nurse, and she wrote an article about Ellie's death. She said, As I watched my niece die of a brain tumor, I came to understand why people might think euthanasia is a good idea. As a nurse, I have to maintain a professional distance, but I felt my niece's suffering on a personal level. It was extreme. And I say this as an intensive care nurse. But... I also grew to understand the value of personal suffering. It showed me that it is worth fighting to the end. Ellie was constantly surrounded by love. Even though she could not speak, she was able to give people a smile. Her smile was infectious and she showed us how someone can choose to live with joy and happiness in the midst of difficulty and suffering. So anyway, I'll include all those links in the show notes. It's really worth just checking out her whole story because it's it's another one of those ones where you're just like crying at the end of it, you're like, oh my gosh, it's so amazing. She's such an amazing person. Um, But it really illustrates the power of that, you know, 
really true, intense, horrible suffering, how purifying it can be and how incredible it can be. And I love this quote that Steph um, includes at the end of her article. She says, does our society need to shift its gaze from a quick euthanasia fix towards the long, slow labor of accompanying those who suffer? I love that reference to labor, right? It reminds me of birth. We've just been talking about birth, right? And at the fact that at the end of that labor, is life, right? Beautiful, eternal life in heaven. And that is so worth accompanying someone on that journey. Also bearing in mind that that journey can involve lessening their suffering, right? It doesn't mean that they have to be in the worst suffering possible. Now, for all of the reasons why euthanasia is wrong, the church teaches that suicide is also not an option. We don't have the absolute right to do what we want with our lives. And all of these things, abortion, euthanasia, and suicide, are considered by the church to be grave sins, mortal sins, right? Because human life is so precious. Now, the church has a responsibility to try to balance Two things. First of all, clear moral teaching, making sure that people know how serious these things are with mercy, right? The mercy of God, making sure that people know that God loves them and he's eternally forgiving. And depending on the kind of you know state of the world at different points in history, the church has had to emphasize one of those things more intensely at different times, right? The seriousness of the sin versus God's mercy. So there was a point in the past where people who had committed suicide couldn't have a Christian funeral. There's a whole bit in Hamlet all about that. <laughs> that one was for you, Jenny. <laughs> and the church in that wasn't trying to sort of condemn people, right? And be like, oh, you're evil, you committed suicide. It was that the church was trying to make it clear to people that this was a really serious issue. However, more recently, it's been kind of like, okay, we get that, right? We get that it's serious. We get that it's a big thing. And now we need to actually emphasize mercy. So since the 1980s, the church has permitted people who have committed suicide to have a Catholic funeral because she acknowledges that very often people who commit suicide are not fully culpable for what they're doing. So the Catechism in point 2282 says grave psychological disturbances, anguish or grave fear of hardship, suffering or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. It goes on to say that we should not despair of the salvation of persons who have taken their lives. The church prays for persons who have taken their own lives. And the same thing goes for abortion. Actually, the church attaches the penalty of excommunication to abortion because it is such a serious thing, right? And in the past, what this meant was that you could only be absolved of that sin and brought back into communion with the church by a bishop, right? You had to actually go to the bishop. However, in 2016, in an apostolic letter, Pope Francis wrote the following. He said, Lest any obstacle arise between the request for reconciliation and God's forgiveness, I henceforth grant to all priests the faculty to absolve this sin. So any priest now can forgive the sin of abortion. So again, this is a situation where the church has recognized, okay, we get that this is serious. We get that it's big, but now we need to emphasize God's mercy. And this is something that we need to remember for all of these end of life issues. We've talked about it before, but it just bears repeating that there is a difference between objective morality of an action and the degree to which someone is personally culpable. In order to be culpable, you need to have full knowledge and full consent. And especially when it comes to things like abortion, euthanasia and suicide, we don't have to think very hard to see that very often there are elements of you know illness or fear or coercion that might limit a person's culpability. Now, again, this does not mean that we have to play these things down. It's not a get out of jail free card. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's all good and you do you, babe. But it does mean that we should just be so careful 
not to judge someone who has participated in one of those things. And it also means that someone who has been in that situation needs to know that they are not being personally judged, that God loves them, that his mercy is infinite and all he wants is for them to be with him in heaven. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> we got there. We did abortion in euthanasia. We didn't even get to the whole war thing. The whole like just war is a just, we still have to talk about, you know, a just war and stuff about war, but okay, this is not the time or place to do it. Maybe I'll do like a little mini episode later and we can talk about war. <laughs> but for now, um, yeah, thanks for sticking with me through that long slog um, through really difficult issues. <laughs> the next topic that we have to talk about is uh, the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery, which encompasses all of the church's teaching on human sexuality. So another really easy one. Thanks guys. Good times. Um, <laughs> I'm going to look forward to that and you have a fantastic fortnight. Bye. Bye.